Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Sahar Khan, a research fellow in the Cato Institute's Defense and Foreign Policy Department. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Sahar. Thank you for having me. Now, the war in Afghanistan is purportedly over. Uh, We can talk about whether or not it actually is, but it's purportedly over. Um, And for 20 years, we've been involved in that country. Um, Now, everyone pretty much knows that 9-11 was sort of the galvanizing force there. But to set the stage for what more recently has happened, um, we what did we believe about Afghanistan when we went into Afghanistan originally? Uh, and what was like, what were our purported goals, at least, for going into the country? So I think they're basically, you know, three myths that are around Afghanistan and or what we thought what would happen. Um, the first myth was that we would be able to um, get control of the country quite easily and maintain control of the country. Now, this is a partly a myth, right? Because we were able to get control of the country and topple the Taliban and dismantle Al-Qaeda quite um, quite quickly. I mean, we went in in November 2001, and basically within a few weeks, it was it was over, right? The Taliban were toppled, and you know all the other sort of key players were scurrying around. So that's partly true, but the myth was that we could maintain control over Afghanistan, that it would somehow become this sort of U.S. ally, U.S. Um, partner almost like a colony, right? I think a lot of people hesitate using that word, but I think that was kind of the idea. And because the U.S. operation in Afghanistan went so well, the Bush administration decided to attack Iraq because why not, right? So that launched us into another war, which of course has been a complete disaster and killed, you know, millions of people and displaced even more. Um, so, so that's the first myth around Afghanistan. The second myth was that we could create a democracy, in Afghanistan. And I think for all of us who pay attention to these things, especially for those scholars who study democratic processes, I think it's fair to say that democratic processes are more grassroots level, right? They're more of a bottom-up approach rather than a top-down approach. It helps when there are some friendly policies at the top, right, who are more democratically friendly. But for the most part, democracy freedom, equality, these sort of happen or start at least at the grassroots level. And I think the U.S. just thought that if the Taliban are gone, somehow they could help Afghan, they could install a government there that would be U.S. friendly, which they did, but that also it would be a democracy. And it would be a democracy in the way that would be friendly towards the U.S., right? Um, of course, this was based on no empirical facts, right? And no sort of past history of democracy either. But that was sort of the idea and the vision that the Bush administration had and that other administ- other you know future administrations um, carried on. So that's the second myth. The third myth really was that the U.S. could somehow exit smoothly, right? And I think this is the one that really has people confused. Because we've known that we're leaving Afghanistan for a long time. We've been debating it. We've been talking about it. Even the Obama administration said we have achieved our core goals. The Obama administration tried to leave, then came back, and then narrowly defined the roles um, and the goals that the U.S. would have. 
So we've been leaving or attempting to leave, right? So you would think that if each administration has focused on leaving Afghanistan, that there would be some kind of coherent exit strategy, right? Like, let's do a couple of things, right? Like, number one, let's make sure that special immigrant visa, which was a special visa that was established by the U.S. for Iraqi and Afghani translators uh, to and their families to come and immigrate to the United States, that perhaps we should ensure that the SIV process is smooth. Perhaps we should ensure that even if the Taliban or another savory actors come into power, humanitarian aid would still go in, right? Because regardless of who's in power in Afghanistan, um, it's a poor country and Afghani people need a lot of international aid to function, right? Another um, option could have been that perhaps... We should ensure that um, we have a deal with the Taliban before we exit that international airports remain functioning, right? The Kabul airport remains functioning. So I feel like there, there are these few things that could have done to make the withdrawal a little smoother, right? Another, op- another option, I think, would have been to tell your Afghan counterparts that you're leaving, right? The way that the U.S. left the Bagram Air Base was in the middle of the night, um, and the Afghan commander who took control of the air base didn't even know that the U.S. had left, right? And uh, supposedly this co- Afghan commander is an ally, right? So, I mean, there, there's so many smaller hiccups that happened that led to sort of the bigger hiccup. I don't think anyone could say that the withdrawal would have been smooth. But the fact that it was done so poorly, I think, is an indication of just how little planning went into the withdrawal. And this is something we wanted to do. Right. So imagine when we don't want to do stuff and how that happens. So I think those are sort of the three myths um, surrounding, you know, our, our role in Afghanistan. We invaded Iraq because we were told they had weapons of mass destruction and we needed to prevent them from using those in ways that would harm us or our interests. And that turned out not to be the case. We for I mean, a lot of our listeners at least some of them probably weren't even alive when we invaded Afghanistan. That's how long the war went on. And the reason that we were given was because 9-11. Like that was, we needed to go in. Can you talk a bit about what the what that argument looked like at the time for why we needed to launch a full-scale invasion of this country. I mean, yes, the, the Taliban was ruling them and the Taliban wasn't great, but there are lots of countries with not great governments that were not invading. Um, and, and so what the argument was and whether that argument in that time, in the, you know, the days and weeks and months after 9-11, whether there was anything to it. Right. So, you know, th- that's a really interesting question because, you know, 9-11 was a tragedy. And I think that the United States is one of those countries who rarely has experienced any terrorist attack on its homeland. Right. So when it happens, it's a really, really big deal. I mean, before 9-11, the attack on the homeland was Pearl Harbor, which was like 1942 and it was part of World War II. And, you know, it, that, that's like, it was a whole different um, framework of, of events. So I think 9-11 was something that really shook Americans and, of course, the American government as it should, right? Because that was, that's what it was meant to do. But I think the uh, policies that, resulted afterwards, right, have actually ended up killing a lot more people and have violated a lot more rights and, frankly, I think have made the United States more insecure than secure. Now, just speaking about the war in Iraq, right, um, first of all, the United States has no issue being friends and allies with unsavory state governments, 
right? Saudi Arabia, Israel are just two examples of this, right? Um, and you, you could argue, you know, the benefits of these bilateral relationships, but at the same time, they're not necessarily, you know, um, they're not known <laughs> for, you know, for, for various things like, you know, civil liberties, et cetera. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, the United States had, had a relationship with Saddam Hussein. And of course, Saddam Hussein was, um, not a good leader, right? He was known for committing massive amounts of atrocities against his people. But the war that the Bush administration launched was an illegal war. And not only was it illegal, but it was based on lies. I mean, you have Colin Powell go to the UN and blatantly lie saying that we have intelligence that Iraq has a program of weapons of mass destruction. And then we later found out that he was lying and it wasn't just him. It was Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and a, a host of people in the administration who lied. And what happened to them? Absolutely nothing. Right. And I think the, the, the greater issue with the war in Iraq, well, first is why did we go in? Right. I think we went in because the Bush administration basically got cocky. Right. They went to Afghanistan. They realized or we were able to topple the Taliban. That was easy. Al Qaeda fled. That was easy. You know what? It's time to topple, um, Iraq too, because they have these weapons and we need to get them. And you know what? Anybody who harms Americans, they're going to get them. You know, we're going to get them. And that, when you have that kind of mentality, and then when you have a military to sort of match that mentality, right? In terms of arsenal, I mean, the United States military is one of the best militaries, one of the best equipped militaries in the world, right? So, when you have that kind of cowboy mentality along with the guns, then yeah, you want to go shooting when you realize that you're good at it, right? And the United States is good at killing, you know, for better or for worse. So I think that's what happened with Iraq. But Iraq is not Afghanistan, right? And they're completely different countries with completely different political landscapes. I mean, Afghanistan had already been involved in a civil war of its own since the Cold War ended, since the Soviet left. Right. Um, Iraq was a proper functioning country. Right. They differ on population. They differ on actual political landscape. They differ on the militant groups that operated there. I mean, it's, it's a whole different country. And, and the United, and, and, and Iraq is bigger as well. And so the United States, I think the Bush administration went in because they got cocky. Right. The second sort of aspect of the Iraq war, which I think is the most troubling, is that the Bush administration got away with it. Right. I mean, this war in Iraq is about 15 or more years old, right? It started in 2003. None of the U.S. officials who lied, not only to the American public, but to the world and have killed thousands of Iraqis because of their lies. None of them have been held accountable. None. And forget the International Criminal Court, right? You could argue that that International Criminal Court doesn't have any teeth or, you know, the U.S. is not even a member of the ICC. So, you know, the ICC can't get a, go after the U.S. But what about the United States, right? There have been no hearings held on, on the Hill about this, right, that we are seeing now in Afghan, about the Afghan withdrawal. We're seeing a couple of hearings last week, the House and Senate held hearings and the House one was actually a part one. So I, I imagine that we're going to see more of that. So we, there is sort of the sense of we need to hold U.S. officials and generals accountable for what happened in Afghanistan. How could this happen, et cetera? But none of that has been done for Iraq and it should be done for Iraq. Right. Because look at all the damage that we that we did there. So, yeah, I think the Iraq war was it's. To say that it's unfortunate, I feel like it doesn't even um, capture the tragedy of Iraq, right? Iraq really is more of a victim of the global war on terror and perhaps more than the U.S. is. 
right? Because 9-11 happened, but it didn't destroy the United States, right? The U.S. economy still grew. Um, you know, Americans, for the most part, still feel safe. Um, most people in the world still want to come to the United States because it still remains a place where you can live freely and safely and you know, thrive. So that didn't really change. So even though 9-11 happened to the United States, it's not really a victim. It's not the, the victim that it, it, it says that it is. And what real, who really are the victims are Afghans and Iraqis. And then from then, from there, Libyans and Yemen and et cetera. Let's talk a little bit about the, the Taliban, because I mean, most Americans know that word, uh, that, that, organization, but maybe don't have a good analogy for what kind of organization it is. I mean, is it like a political party? Is it like the Republicans in the United States? So if, so we, we invade Afghanistan and, um, and then the Taliban gets up and goes, goes somewhere and kind of hides as far as I understand, like probably in Pakistan and some other places, but like, did, is there like a, is it organized to the point that someone, you know, you can just email everyone on the Taliban and say, okay, everyone's in the Taliban. We're all going to go now and run away. Um, is it that kind of like, you know, membership organization or is it more like the Republican Party of Ohio? So if we, if someone was to invade Ohio and the Republican Party of Ohio said, all right, we're all going to move to Michigan now until they leave Ohio and then we'll come back. Is it more like that or is it somewhere in between? <laughs> You know, it's funny you, you mentioned Ohio because I went to undergrad in Ohio. So I feel like if there was ever a time that Ohio's, Ohioans went to Michigan willingly, that's really, that I means something's really going on, right? So, um, so okay, first of all, so the, the Taliban is, is not like the Republican Party. Right. Um, it makes me chuckle for you to say that, they, but, 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 but they're not. I think they want to be like a political party. I think that. In the future, we're going to see, like right now, we're seeing an evolution. So the way that Hezbollah and, uh, in Lebanon and the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt have evolved, I do think that that's what the Taliban want. And I think that's the trajectory we're seeing. But just to go backwards a little bit, who are the Taliban? So the Taliban basically are a collection of factions. They're not really a centralized group. Um, they have like, Twitter and a spokesperson now. So maybe they have a newsletter, but, um, I'm not signed on to it. So I'm not sure, <laughs> but, um, but you know, everybody has the internet. So, but, but it's not necessarily an organization that you become a member of and pay dues to. Um, it came up basically during the cold war when the United States and Pakistan helped create the Mujahideen, which were the anti-communist forces to fight the Soviet union. When, um, the Mujahideen was created and the cold war ended and the U S basically left Afghanistan, you had the Mujahideen left, in Afghanistan, and they were essentially unemployed. So some of them formed other groups. Some of them just left, you know, the profession of, of militancy. Um, and some became the Taliban, right? And the Taliban essentially gathered power, um, you know, locally and especially in the south of the country. And then in 1990s, in 1996, they toppled Kabul and they formed a government and they said that they're the official government of, of Afghanistan and their whole um, goal is to make Afghanistan into an Islamic emirate of Afghanistan. So the Taliban are unlike Al Qaeda and un unlike the Islamic State that came up in 2014, they don't have international goals. Their goal is very much focused within the borders of Afghanistan. They are concerned with how Afghanistan is being governed and they want it to be governed under their interpretation of Islamic law. 
which is actually quite strict and it's um, almost very literal um, in, in terms of property rights and family rights, etc. Um, so the Taliban is, some countries view it as a terrorist organization um, and some countries do not. So for example, for the United States, uh, the, the US has never labeled the Taliban as a foreign terrorist organization. Um, politicians might refer to their activities as terrorist activities or as terrorist acts of violence. But one of the reasons why the U.S. has never labeled the Taliban as a foreign terrorist organization is because when you get labeled as an FTO, you cannot have any kind of relationship with them. You cannot negotiate with them. And so when the U.S. war in Afghanistan started, part of the U.S. goal was also that at some point they might need to negotiate with the Taliban. Right. And this is something actually Pakistan pushed the U.S. on um, that don't necessarily declare them a terrorist group because you might run into some trouble. Right. Which is um, it's rare to have positive developments in the U.S.-Pakistan relationship. And Pakistan often does not get credit for some of the things that it ends up doing. But um, that was one of the, the things that Pakistan pushed um, the, the U.S. on. But yeah, so the Taliban itself right now, you know, um, since they got toppled in 2001, they've been uh, evolving. So in 2009, the Obama administration built a political office for them in Doha, Qatar. And one of the goals was that they would be able to come to a neutral place, not Pakistan, not Afghanistan, not some place that the, that the U.S. is really friendly with. Qatar is sort of, you know, neutral ground for all stakeholders involved. So they could go to Doha and they could potentially talk to the U.S. and potentially in the future talk to the Afghan government. Since that office was formed, the Taliban has really taken its role um, to become a legitimate actor in Afghanistan really seriously. And they want international recognition. So when they came into power in, in 1996, only three countries recognized them. Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the United Arab Emirates. Nobody else did, right? And the Taliban basically learned its lesson because what it doesn't want is a repeat of 2001, right? It doesn't want any foreign troops, especially the U.S., to come in and topple them again. So since their office in Doha, they have literally been trying to have bilateral relations with Central Asian countries, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, especially the ones that they have borders with. They've been reaching out to China, to Russia. Of course, they have a relationship with Pakistan, which has, you know, weakened over time. But for the most part, it's a good relationship as far as foreign relationships go. Um, but the, but the Taliban are really trying. So now their goal is that they want international recognition, right? So the Taliban still, like India still views the Taliban as a terrorist group, and so do several European countries. For the most part, it's still up for debate whether or not they are a terrorist group. As of, as of today, no country has officially recognized them, but they are, they did form an interim government. In Afghanistan, though, but they have been very clear. They said that Afghanistan is not going to be a democracy. They're not going to have elections and they'll have some sort of uh, council members who are in charge of the government. But but that's it. So so that's who the Taliban are. They're, they're a bunch of factions together who are trying to figure out how to govern Afghanistan. They have they do use tactics that are labeled as terrorism Um they're not very friendly towards women and minorities, but um, for the most part, they view themselves as a legitimate actor in Afghan politics. When you were talking about Iraq, you you said that Iraq was a, I think the term you used was a functioning country before we invaded it. Um, and and that, that makes me think of there's, when we look at kind of U.S., 
Mideast policy and, and a lot of the objections that I have seen to, say, us leaving Afghanistan or, you know, objections to the objections about invading Iraq back when we were having those arguments. Um, one of the one of the common refrains is that, like, these governments, like, yes, it was Iraq was functioning as a country in the sense that it had a more or less stable government that was doing things, but it was wildly oppressive and awful for the people who lived under it. The Taliban might not have been as bad as the Islamic State, but was terrible. Um, we you can see similar arguments about, say, Syria right now. And and so when we go in, you know, it's bad things happened in Iraq, but we got rid of Saddam Hussein's government. Um Bad things happened in Afghanistan, but we had 20 years of not Taliban rule when, say, women could get an education, attend universities. There were significantly more freedom and individual rights than there were before our invasion or there are now with the Taliban taking over again. And that if we have the opportunity to do that, we should be doing that. And we shouldn't just be saying, like, look, these are stable governments because they're god awful governments. Um does that play any role in how we should think about these issues? So um, I think what you've sort of explained or, you know, described really is the logic behind interventions, right? Like U.S. interventions or humanitarian interventions. And, you know, ideally, it sounds great when you have a government that's repressive and oppressive. And Iraq was also doing a bunch of shady things. They didn't necessarily have a weapons of mass destruction program, but, you know, they were, you know, um, trading in illicit nuclear material um, and, and doing all sorts of things they should not be doing. Um, and that's that's all that's all a fair point. But the question really should be, is it the U.S.'s responsibility to invade these countries? And then second, does the U.S. have a right Right. Every country that's recognized by the UN, according to international law, right, has sovereignty within its borders. You cannot just invade a country. You can physically, which is what the US has done several times in various countries, but it creates problems. And the main problems it creates is the problem of legitimacy. Yeah. Saddam is gone. Saddam Hussein is gone. And I, that's a relief. Sure. But what's left? Right. What, who replaced Saddam Hussein? Right. What we ended up with is a weak, a weak Iraqi government. Right. Which was um, headed by uh, Nouri al-Maliki. And then uh, later on, um, the, the current government of Iraq right now. Um, and we were also left with the birth of the Islamic State, Daesh, which I would argue is probably even more powerful, and more dangerous than Al-Qaeda. Had the U.S. not invaded Iraq, Daesh would not exist. And all of its affiliates, like Islamic State Khurasan, which is operating in Afghanistan, would not exist. Perhaps something else would have existed, I don't know. But just from what happened on the ground, it's clear that the U.S. invasion of Iraq made Iraq a lot more unstable, right? And even if you, and, and I, I do want to preface this by saying I'm not an Iraq expert. I'm not a U.S. Middle East policy expert, right? So just as an observer of like U.S. policy in Afghanistan and South Asia, I feel like I can speak a little bit about what the U.S. has been doing in the Middle East. But if you look at what happened with Libya, right? Muammar Gaddafi was no cakewalk either. He was a terrible, terrible man, right? Who oppressed and killed thousands of his people. But one of the things he always said was that if I'm gone, Right. Libya is going to become completely decentralized and it will be 
it will become like a no man's land with which will not have any functionality right now it's very rare to agree with Muammar Gaddafi really on anything but the man had a point you can't get rid of a dictator if you don't have any plans of how to replace the dictator right and if you are looking for a replacement that replacement you better be sure that replacement is going to work the us is excellent at toppling dictators wonderful at doing coups no doubt we are an expert on that what we are absolutely terrible in is replacing the dictators with legitimate political leaders right we always have a vision of these political leaders that they're going to be us allies that they're going to protect liberty and 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 bring justice and those are all great they literally never have happened on the ground and i think that's the main problem with interventionist arguments yes you should when human rights are violated you should criticize them and the united states especially as a leader in the international community on all sorts of fronts right um the us emerged as a unipolar power right after the cold war um so yes the us should be vocal about injustices but that does not mean that the us should go in and topple countries especially when they don't have any plan of how to replace the ones that they toppled right um and and that's my main concern with with intervention with interventionist arguments and another thing is that the united states right has along with 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 britain and france has been an architect of the sort of liberal international order that we have right so when you created this international order right why not use it right why are you so bent on using your military all the time right i mean these forces of diplomacy right they should mean something but they'll only mean something if they're used properly and effectively and the us almost almost always goes in with a gun right rather than wanting to talk and having a dialogue or hearing the other side and i think that's been another problem that we've seen with the global war on terror as well and if you just look at the sheer numbers of the number of people who have been killed and the instability that has been caused i would argue that this war on terror though ideologically it sounds great has made the world a lot more unstable and has made us unsafe over the course of the afghanistan war of course at the beginning it was Get rid of the Taliban, get rid of Al Qaeda, um, and then, well, I, this is part of my question. The way I remember it, but I'm not an expert, is that there was the counterinsurgency until about 2010, and then we've kind of just been staying there, but not sure of what to do with the country uh, until like August. I mean, I guess Biden announced that we'd be pulling out, and. So, I mean, first of all, is that kind of an accurate story? And what details am I missing? And was the main reason that we were just sort of hanging out there was just this sort of fear of what would happen next, like in terms of like you mentioned, Dish, like ISIS, like the being that that's what would happen in Afghanistan. So we just sort of were sitting around with 7,500 troops saying, we'll just stay here until what something good happens, I guess. Or uh, so is, is that the general story we see? And eventually they just decided we're done. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is kind of the general story, which makes it really sad. But I think, you know, for those service members, U.S. service members and, and NATO allies, et cetera, who served in Afghanistan, I think a lot of them felt that they were doing something good. They were going in and they were, you know, on the ground level, they were really helping Afghans. There, there were countless stories of U.S. service members building roads and build, digging wells and, um, you know, literally constructing buildings and bridges. Um, 
trying to create an infrastructure where, where, you know, ordinarily, ordinary Afghans could live. So I, I don't want to discount any of the good things that the U.S. ended up doing, right? But I think the problem became, or the problem really was that nobody really knew, even the higher ups, they couldn't really articulate what you're doing in Afghanistan. And, you know, you need to have an elevator speech and you need to believe it. <laughs> right. So I remember when I was writing my dissertation, my advisor would always say to me, what's your dissertation on? And I would have this like 10 minute speech prepared. He's like, no, tell me in like 30 seconds, like your elevator speech. You need to know what you're doing. What is the core mission of this dissertation? And I think for Afghanistan, that was lacking. Whoever you asked, there was a different core mission, right? And that mission was, well, make sure that, that Afghanistan is not a safe haven for Al Qaeda. Okay. Sure. We kind of already did that, right? They're not really, they're operating in Afghanistan, but not the same way they were before. Um, then the mission was, well, create, um, democracy, right? Create democratic institutions. Well, you know, if Afghans want democracy, they'll have to create them, the, create it themselves. The U.S. could potentially help and aid, but you can't just create a court system and say, okay, now have court cases. Right. It doesn't it doesn't really work that way. Um, so I think the problem really became that nobody knew what the mission was. And then the longer you stay, the harder it becomes to leave. Right. Because so many Americans have died. Right. In, in Afghanistan. I mean, 2000, 2300 or more. Um, and then thousands more Afghans have died. Right. And a lot of these U.S. service members became friends with their translators. They almost viewed them as as families as well. Right. So there was sort of a, a ground level, I think, interaction that's really important. But I think the problem really was that nobody really knew what to do with Afghanistan anymore. You know, what's what's the goal? And I think the other issue was that there was this idea that you can destroy, that the U.S. can destroy the Taliban, right? The problem is you can't, you know, because the Taliban is part of Afghani society. Now, you could argue, you know, why they're part of Afghani society. How did they evolve to be this way? Um, what happened, right? Um, and th those are all good discussions and arguments to have. But you cannot annihilate a group. Also, annihilating a group like that would be completely genocide, right? As far as I know, as definitions go. And I don't think the U.S. went in, right, wanting to commit genocide or anything like that. So I think the issue really became that nobody, none of the administrations from Bush onward could articulate what they were doing in Afghanistan. And so that's why I think, you know, the withdrawal should have gone smoother. It probably should have been better planned. Absolutely. But I think President Biden was really right in saying that we don't know what we're doing there. We don't have any reason to be there. We have to leave. And I think that decision was probably really painful for him, too. I mean, he had a son who served and who died because of complications from serving. So these are not easy decisions to make, right? But I think what needs to happen is we need to figure out, right, what really went wrong in our mission strategy in Afghanistan. What did the U.S. really want? And even though we've withdrawn now, we still don't really know what we want. Um, and I think that that's, that's a main problem. And because of that, you know, we've, we wasted, like, we spent like a trillion dollars in Afghanistan and killed thousands of people and arguing still killing people. I mean, we just, the Pentagon on Friday made an announcement that they killed, um, that a drone strike killed 10 people, seven of them children. So the killing is not done. There are no boots on the ground, but there are drones in the air. So to me, that's still war. Um, and frankly, I, I think the problem is nobody knows what we're doing in Afghanistan to this day. Nobody knows. A counter to that that argument, though, that I have seen, especially 
during and immediately after the withdrawal is, look, we, you know, we accomplished early on those early on goals of kicking out the Taliban and destabilizing Al-Qaeda and... And we created this situation where maybe the new government wasn't working out as well as we hoped or wasn't as stable as we hoped, but people in Afghanistan had more freedoms than they did before. And, you know, in the last several years, the number of American service member deaths was was relatively low. Um, we had stabilized the country with our presence. And so, yeah, maybe maybe we didn't have an immediate, like— by this time next year, there will be a stable and lasting democracy in Afghanistan, but things were a lot better. It wasn't costing us a lot to continue being there. Maybe they just needed more time, and we should have just kept sticking around until, you know, while the costs were low, until things got better, or even if they didn't, I guess indefinitely, because it made life a lot better for most of the people who were there. Yeah, I mean, that's an argument I've heard as well. And, you know, to some extent, it is convincing, right? We could have just stayed. Uh, maybe if we stayed, things would be better. But here's the thing. We are a foreign occupying force, right? We do not belong in Afghanistan the way that we were staying in Afghanistan. And, you know, one of one another goal of the U.S. had been to strengthen Afghan national security forces. And the U.S. spent a lot of time and money training these forces. But one of the problems with training um, the forces were that a lot of Afghan national security forces did not feel safe. They felt that because there is no interaction or link or negotiation or agreement between the Afghan government and the Taliban, that they're the ones who are targeted. So yeah, U.S. service members were not were not being killed, but the, but the Taliban were targeting Afghan national security forces and killing them, you know, by thousands. I mean, every year the Taliban launches a spring offensive in April, in which they say, they announce it, we're starting our offensive, and we're going after the Afghan national security forces, right? And this and is sort of like, they're, because they're like traitors, kind of. They're yeah, no they view them as, yeah, yeah, absolutely. They view them as traitors, right? They view them as you are helping the, you are helping the United States remain in Afghanistan, you are uh, exploiting Afghanistan and you are basically part of a puppet regime that has been constructed by the U.S. Now, how is that helpful? Right. Um, sure. The U.S. service members weren't being killed, but we were, we were still spending millions of dollars in Afghanistan. And if you look at it now, we don't really have anything to show for it. The Afghan National Security Forces basically collapsed within a week. And, you know, the thing that really angered me in the U.S. media when they were talking about Afghan National Security Forces was painting them as being, you know, kind of lazy or incompetent or not brave. And that is not the case at all. These are men, and in some cases women, who risked their lives and their families' lives because they believed in the vision that the U.S. had created about Afghanistan, which was that Afghanistan can become a democracy and that the United States is going to help Afghanistan become a democracy, right? But that in of itself is almost impossible, right? You, The, the U.S. cannot create a democracy in Afghanistan. And, and I think what the U.S. will hopefully realize is that it completely overinflated and overestimated its own abilities, right, in Afghanistan, especially when it comes to institution building. So, you know, the, the issue, I think, really becomes that we didn't really, the U.S. to this day still didn't really know what they were doing in Afghanistan. There were narrow goals and every administration made every goal more narrow, 
right? And that was good. But for the most part, the military mission should have been over a long time ago. There, and there are also other ways that the U.S. can help Afghanistan, right? There's humanitarian aid. There is medical training. There is uh, like language training. I mean, there are all, there are all sorts of non-military ways that the U.S. can help Afghanistan, um, become, uh, you know, better integrated into the international community and potentially even hold the Taliban or whoever is in power more accountable to some of the atrocities that are, that are, that are being done there. But how Having U.S. troops on the ground was not helping the cause at all. And it certainly wasn't helping the Taliban. If nothing else, they became stronger. And their argument of the U.S. is an occupying force that wants Afghanistan's resources. Um, the, the Afghanistan has a great deal of um, semi-precious metals and um, and um, other natural resources. And so their argument was that this is what they want. They want um, to be- make Afghanistan part of their territory. Right. So I think now with the U.S. gone, um, hopefully there'll be other ways that the U.S. can can help and aid Afghan people. But I think troops on the ground was not the way to do it. And we could have we could have stayed for as long as we wanted. But I think we, the minute we would have left, either we withdrew today or we withdrew 10 years from now, 20 years from now, I think we would be having the same discussion. And when it comes to the Taliban and uh, the way Americans, I think a lot of Americans think about so-called let's just say extremist Muslim groups uh, around the world, whether it's Hezbollah or ISIS or the Taliban. Um, I think many Americans think that they're all friends, Uh, like, like some supervillain league that gets together and like has meetings and talks about how they're going to go after America, like going after Batman and the justice league and all that stuff. And that, and that Taliban and, and ISIS are best friends along with Hezbollah and Iran, Iran and, and Al Qaeda. Um, what's the reality there? So that's, that's a great question. So I, I know, I don't think that they're, they get together, you know, once a month and hold weekly, weekly meetings of how to topple America. Um, so there is a spectrum and actually it's um, uh, one of our Cato colleagues, Mustafa Eichel describes it really well, right? So there's a, a spectrum, Right of of basically um, extremist um, is, Islamic thought or extremist groups, right? And um, Al Qaeda and ISIS are basically on one end of the spectrum, right? And they're they're really bad. Especially ISIS is is really bad, right? In terms of um, its its goals, in terms of its ideology, in terms of its suppression and oppression, and using Islam, I think, as a political tool for its political gains. I, I think they're the worst at it, right? The Taliban are kind of in the middle. Right. I mean, they're not great, but like they're not that bad either, which is terrible to say because they are actually quite bad. Right. So, again, I just want to stress this is a, a spectrum. Right. And they don't always all get along. So the Taliban actually. um, So they were friendly with Al Qaeda. Right. And they sort of had an alliance. But after 9-11 and after the U.S. war in Afghanistan began, the Taliban and Al Qaeda alliance has really weakened. The Taliban is very unhappy with Al Qaeda because they feel like they're the ones who put um, the Taliban in this position. There are the reasons why, um, the Taliban got toppled because they were doing just fine, you know, before the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Nobody recognized them, but nobody was toppling them either, right? So it was fine. Um, and so they're really not happy with Al Qaeda operating in Afghanistan. So there's been some sort of, um, schism there. They still have an alliance, but it, it's weak. The Taliban does not get along with the Islamic State. And they do not get along with Islamic State Khurasan, which is the affiliate of Islamic State that's operating in Afghanistan. And the, and the reason is that they each view each other as traitors. So Islamic State, basically, their goal is to create a large caliphate, 
right? Where all of these Western borders, right, that are recognized that they won't exist, that they will, they will be done with. And this will be sort of a big caliphate that's, that's ruled under their interpretation of Islamic law. This is the vision they have. The Taliban just want to rule Afghanistan according to Islamic law, right? They, they don't have any international, you know, um, uh, reach or anything like that. They're focused, you know, territorially, they're focused on Afghanistan itself. So, Islamic State Khorasan, which is the affiliate operating in, in Afghanistan, um, they view the Taliban as a traitor because they're basically saying, okay, so you want to stay within your border, these borders that have been, the, these borders that are Western constructs that are, that have been created by infidels. You want to stay in these borders and to some extent you want international recognition. Right. And really the only thing you should be striving for is, you know, recognition from God and, 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 you know, um, worshiping God and, um, you know, in, in, in the Islamic, in, in the political system they envision, the people are not sovereign. Like in a democracy, people are sovereign, right? In, in their vision, God is sovereign and, and that's it, right? They're simply, um, trying to, you know, function, but there, we shouldn't be listening to the people. We should be listening to God. And you can do that through the Quran and the Hadith, et cetera. So that's sort of their argument. So, so Islamic State and Taliban are enemies. And I think what we're going to see and what we did see recently, right, in August, that horrendous suicide bombing at the Kabul airport that killed over 100 people, that was done by Islamic State Khurasan. So I do think that we're going to see more attacks like that, where ISK is basically attacking the Taliban now, right, and attacking um, Taliban security forces now. Um, I think we're going to see more of that, which indicates that they are not on the same page, right? And the Taliban basically want ISK out. And in fact, in 2015, when ISK um, uh, was really powerful, um, they, uh, the U.S. and the Taliban actually together um, launched a counterinsurgency campaign to get rid of the group. And the group weakened significantly till it rose again. It sort of elected an, a new leader who's really focused on urban warfare. And since 2019, the group has sort of... Um, you know, revived itself. But the fact that it was gone, it was done because of the partnership that the Taliban had with the Afghan National Security Forces and with the U.S., right? So they collectively got together to, to counter this group. So yeah, so all militants are not friends. Um, all militants don't, have, they might have similar ideologies, but they disagree on their ideologies. And also, most of these groups are also not monolithic either, right? I mean, we talk about the Taliban as it's this one cohesive group with like a monthly membership fee, <laughs> but, you know, but it's not that, right? Um, it's actually a collection of factions. And even within the Taliban, you see a lot of differences and a lot of debate of, you know, how to rule and what to do, et cetera. So um, I, I do think, though, we are um, witnessing an evolution of the Taliban. And my sense is that they want to become something like Hezbollah and the Muslim Brotherhood. They want some sort of international recognition. They don't really care if some groups in some countries call them terrorists. They're fine with that label, but they, um, want more recognition, you know, as like a legitimate, um, player in Afghan politics or really the only player in Afghan politics. Now, obviously the people most affected by the U.S. invasion and then the U.S. presence and then the U.S. withdrawal are the Afghan people themselves. What have they thought throughout this whole process? Like, were they in favor of the invasion? Did they were, to the extent that we have, say, public polling data, did they appreciate the U.S. presence? And then 
do we know like did the did the people of Afghanistan want the US to leave maybe not in the way we did but were they ready for us to get out you know that's a great question I think it's first of all it's really hard to get polling information like that in Afghanistan um, my sense is just from all the news articles and uh, the people who have been interviewed and um there's there's of course internet there so a lot of um, Afghan activists have been using Twitter and Facebook um, etc to to you know explain their logic explain how they feel I think my sense from them is that they are first of all they're all really wary. Right. Um, first, you know, the Soviets came in and created havoc. Then, you know, the Taliban came and then the U.S. came. So they've been in a state of war for 40 years, which is a really long time. Right. And it's something that's extremely devastating. So they're they're kind of war wary and they're they're tired. Um the second thing is, I think that a lot of them did believe that the U.S., you know, the U.S. made them a lot of promises, um, that they would help Afghan society, that they would, they would help the country of Afghanistan and, or that they would be able to immigrate to the United States or European countries. And I think a lot of Afghans feel that those promises were not delivered. And so they're disappointed with that. But I think the, the third, um, the third thing that really sort of resonates in that, that, um, I've noticed the most is that Afghans feel like the world is turning their back on them, right? Um, and that they're killing, that they're being killed by the thousands and by the hundreds. And nobody really cares about the Afghan people. Um, the international community only really cares about the Taliban and what they're doing. Um, and the bad things they're doing, like opium production and, and, you know, illicit and antique um illicit selling of, of antiques and all of that stuff they care about that kind of thing but they don't really care about women's rights right they don't really care about um what's happening uh you know like medical facilities right and how equipped our hospitals are are afghans getting vaccinated right uh, are vaccines available so i think afghans feel really neglected by the world you know and a lot of this i, I think does fall on the shoulders of the united states because the us had made all these promises to the afghans right i mean one example that i mentioned earlier was the special immigrant visa right i mean if you have like seriously if you have a us marine right? Vouching for you and your whole family, and you still can't enter the United States, something is wrong, right? Something is wrong. And this is bureaucratic incompetence on the side of the United States, right? To say that the U.S. botched up the withdrawal is like, I mean, is, is it enough to say that, right? I mean, they really messed it up, right? And these are people's lives. I mean, you, the images we saw of People getting on a plane, right? That 17 year old soccer player that the Wall Street Journal wrote about, right? Um, and he basically flew, he basically like fell off a plane. Like nobody does that unless they're absolutely desperate. So I think the Afghan people are really desperate, right? And they're, and they're, they're dying. Um, and they don't want to die. So I think it is on the shoulders of the international community to take some kind of responsibility, especially the United States as well. And, you know, the Afghans, you know, it's hard to say they're very proud people. Um, from what I've read and the few that I've met, they're, they're very, very proud of their cultural heritage. And it's a really, it's a country that actually has a very rich cultural heritage. They're very proud of that. They're very proud of their resilience, right? Um, 
that foreign forces have come in and unable to topple them <laughs> um, or, you know, get rid of them or conquer them or what have you. So they're very proud of that, um, you know, and, and they're very proud of who they are, of their cuisine, of their languages, of how they have practiced religions, of their ethnicities. So they're very proud people. And I think, um, you know, what we're seeing now is basically a lot of them are desperate, right? And and if nothing else, the United States owes them a lot, uh, owes the Afghani people a lot more than, than what we've given, right? And one core argument, you know, Aaron, you were talking about going into Afghanistan. One of the arguments of going into Afghanistan was, oh, we have to help Afghani women, right? We, we gotta, we gotta make sure they're not suppressed anymore, right? And then 20 years, within these 20 years, very rarely did any U.S. strategy talk about women's rights or minority rights. And then the U.S. left and suddenly now it's like, oh, we're so concerned about Afghan women, right? Now, this is not to say that Afghan women did not make you know, um, achievements during this time. Of course they did. But, you know, to say that this was one of the goals of the U.S., I, I think is also, it's like deflecting, right? I don't think it was one of the goals of the U.S. to liberate Afghan women. I think it sounded good to the American public, but I don't think that, that this is what U.S. officials really wanted. So I think there's a, there's a lot of corruption involved. There are a lot of lies. There's a lot of, you know, inflation of, 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 um, you know, information out there. And um, it's hard to tell what Afghans really think, but my sense is that they're feeling neglected by the international community um, and they feel that the U.S. owes them a lot more than they've been given. Now, going forward, if we have, in some sense, a nicer Taliban than we did 20 years ago, or at least one that wants to uh, join the world community and get recognition, um, do we expect them to be as harsh as they were uh, when it comes to, say, punishing all the Afghani who helped out American service troops, punishing people who have slightly different religious beliefs, uh, blowing up statues? Do we, I mean, is, do we expect this to all happen again? Like, or so? I, I guess I'm asking you to, you know, make a prediction on, on you know, is it going to be as bad as it was, uh, and and. Can we, is there anything we can do except for, you know, what we should be doing is getting everyone out of there who wants to come here, but I don't see that happening. So how bad is it going to get? Yeah. Well, you know, um, as I say, as a, as a U.S. Uh, foreign policy expert, I'm great at making predictions. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm terrible at making predictions and nobody should ever predict anything when it comes to foreign policy. But yeah, you know, so far the Taliban have said that they are not going to seek revenge, right? That they're not going to, uh, target those people who worked with the U.S. or allied forces or who are part of the Afghan National Security Forces. Um, they, they did say that they will do a curriculum review, but that women and girls can go to school um, and they will be allowed to con continue um, graduate studies as well. And, um, and the classes will be segregated, but, but women can, can work um, and they will be allow allowed to do so. They have somewhat become a little looser in their interpretation of various things. But, you know, it's hard to say how they'll be, right? I mean, because their core ideology has not changed, right? They do have a very sort of puritanical interpretation of Islam. And I don't think that's going to change. Now, what will be interesting to see is, um, if, if all the things they've said, will, will it actually happen or not? Right. And this, I think will determine, this will be determined by the kind of international recognition they get. Now, what they really want is for, you know, other countries to, 
to recognize them as the legitimate government of Afghanistan. That hasn't happened yet. I, you know, it, you could say that once that happens, they'll be like, okay, great. Now we can do whatever the hell we want because we have governments recognizing us, right? Or because they've been recognized, right? It might um, force them to then adhere to certain international standards and norms and laws, right? That other sovereign countries do. I mean, you know, Saudi Arabia is, is, is a, is a sovereign country, right? And it is a member of the UN and, and all of that. And so is Pakistan and, um, South Sudan and all of that. So, I mean, it's hard to tell what's going to happen right now. Things on the ground are so unpredictable. Um, that I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see how the Taliban evolve itself. Um, but the spokes, the spokesperson they have though is very much, I mean, he's, He's good at what he does, right? He's trying to represent the Taliban and he's trying to explain to the world like what their ideology is and how they've changed and how they want to function. Um, he's trying to make the message clear, right? Um, and, and it's up to the world whether to buy it or not. Right. So uh, it's, it's very, it's very hard to predict. But I, what I do think is going to happen is that we're going to see a lot more attacks between the Taliban and Islamic State Khorasan. Um, absolutely. And I think, um, we should be prepared to, you know, hear more sort of um, bad news coming from Afghanistan when it comes to civilian deaths, right? So, yeah, you know, we've been really focused on what the U.S. has thought about the withdrawal and, you know, the implications for U.S. foreign policy and U.S. thinking. And that's all great. And, of course, that's extremely important. I think, you know, it's time for the U.S. to be held accountable for its actions in Afghanistan. And this is one of the first wars where we have so much information, like actually open source information that people can use to um, ask questions from generals and policymakers. And I think that that's way overdue, right? We didn't have that for the Vietnam War, or the Korean War, um, or for the Iraq War. So for Afghanistan, I think it's important that the House and Senate are sort of, you know, taking this seriously and holding hearings. But, you know, I think um, the one thing that we should also focus focus on is the regional fallout from Afghanistan, right? Afghanistan is a landlocked country. And we had all these images of Afghans fleeing. And yeah, many of them wanted to flee to the US and Europe, but thousands really ended up in neighboring countries like Pakistan, which hosts about 3 million um, Afghan refugees, um, and also Iran, which hosts about 800,000 Afghan refugees, right? And then and neighboring countries like Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. Now, all of these countries have said, we can't take any more Afghan refugees, right? We ourselves are poor. We ourselves are dealing with our sort of own internal dynamic and turmoil. Um, and so we can't have um, more refugees. So I think what we're going to see or what we should be prepared for is is a refugee crisis that's similar to the Syrian refugee crisis, right? Which was massive. And I think this is what we're going to see in the region too. And this is already a region, South Asia basically already has ongoing refugee crises in Myanmar, in Bangladesh, um, in India. So it's all, it's just going to add pressure, right? Of uh, On these poor countries that are struggling with not just sort of conventional security concerns, but like environmental and climate change concerns as well, right? This sort of second regional fallout I think we're going to see is an increase and opium trade, right? Um, the Taliban has made a ton of money, has really made most of their money by um, 
selling drugs, right? Growing drugs and selling them. Um, you know, they, they, uh, they grow opium. Um, and this is something, a poppy production was something that the U.S. tried to actually end. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were not very successful at it. And basically the, the region that the Taliban grew most of the poppy in the U.S. was uh, rarely able to get control over it. So we're probably going to see an increase, right, in, in drug trafficking, because that's lucrative for the Taliban. We're probably also going to see an increase in, you know, um, in black market, um, black market sales of, 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 of antiques or like, I think it's called illicit antiquing, basically, right? Um, and you know, it's, it's, we, we saw this in Iraq. And we saw this in Lebanon as well, where various artifacts would end up, right, and in private art collections or in museums. And you kind of wonder, well, how did you get that? You know, I mean, did you, I mean, was it a sale on Amazon or eBay? I mean, it got to you somehow, right? So I think we're going to see a lot of that because the Taliban um, don't, you know, Afghanistan has a really rich cultural heritage of, especially of pre-Islamic artifacts, but the Taliban are not interested in that, right? Um, and they and they need to make money, obviously, to, to survive. And so I think we're going to see a, a sort of a, a spike in, in this kind of illicit trading. Um, and the third thing I think that we should really be concerned about is the instability that's going to be caused in Afghanistan because of a lack of humanitarian aid. Like right now, the IMF and the World Bank basically have said, no, we're not giving aid. Um, and the reason, of course, is because they're not recognizing the Taliban, right? Which I'm not saying that you should, but I think regard, I think that should be a separate issue. I think the key is if you really want to help Afghans, then the avenues of humanitarian aid have to be open. There has to be some way to coordinate with the Taliban and international um, organizations to get um, medical supplies, vaccines, um, medicines to the Afghan people, um, because they're the ones who are suffering the most. So these are some of the larger things to think about when we think about Afghanistan. But, you know, of course, at a domestic level, I think it's time to ask our policymakers some really serious questions about what went wrong with the withdrawal. Why was it so terrible and why was it so botched up? Um, and then internationally, I think we need to think about just sort of the implications of having a, a U.S. foreign policy that's um, using our military, right? That goes in with a gun rather than um, with diplomacy. Um, and I think Afghanistan is, is a prime example of that. So I hope we learn our lesson. I'm not holding our breath. <laughs> I'm not holding my breath, but I'm an optimistic person. So I'm just going to hope that, you know, we get more answers and that hopefully it, it makes, you know, our policymakers rethink our military interventions. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.